that explanation is too narrow and limited. Had that been the effect of the binding of Satan, there should have been no further resistance to the spread of the gospel after the crucifixion of Christ. Once the atonement was made, it should have been possible to have carried the good news to all the nations without restraint. But we find instead that the devil's resistance has continued very vigorously, and that even today, 19 centuries later, some nations still remain almost completely closed, and that many others have received only a very inadequate and superficial witness. The amillennial interpretation that the binding of Satan took place at the first advent of Christ seems rather far-fetched and unconvincing. It is open to the objection that if that is the meaning of the binding of Satan, then the loosing spoken of in Revelation 20 verses 3 and 7, which is the opposite of binding, must mean the reversing of the work of Christ, that is, the annulment of the atonement, or at least a time when it becomes ineffective. But that is impossible, even for a little time. We prefer to take Matthew 12:29 as a simple statement of the superiority of Christ over the devil, and the casting out of the demon recorded in the same context as a proof of the deity of Christ. In fact, God was as able in Old Testament times as in New Testament times to set free from the bondage of sin those whom he pleased and as many as he pleased. An atonement was necessary in order that sinners might be saved, but its future accomplishment was so sure that salvation was possible even before it was accomplished. The knowledge of salvation was extended to the nation of Israel and multitudes were saved. Had God so willed, he could have extended it to all other nations as well. Jonah was sent to preach to the city of Nineveh and provision was made for any Gentiles who wished to join with Israel. The devil had no inherent rights over mankind to begin with, nor any power to tempt or afflict or hold human souls in bondage except as God gave him permission. He was already a fallen creature and under condemnation for sin. Calvin rightly says that the devil cannot attempt anything but by the divine will. Furthermore, the satisfaction that Christ rendered by his suffering and death was not in any sense made to the devil, but was made to satisfy divine justice. The devil had no right of ownership over human beings, but was, from the beginning, a usurper. The law that God himself had established, on the basis of which he proposed to govern the universe, was that sins should be punished with suffering and death. Having made that law and proclaimed it to all intelligent creatures, he could not, after Adam sinned, merely pardon that sin without an atonement. His honor was at stake, and the law had to be enforced as he had said that it would be. The sinner must suffer, or if he is to be spared, that suffering God himself must take the sinner's place as his substitute and pay that penalty himself. Consequently, in taking the sinner's place before the divine law and meeting its full demands in his own person, Christ was rendering satisfaction to divine justice. That the devil was a defeated and conquered foe long before the work of Christ on the cross is shown by the Apostle Peter when he says that God spared not angels when they sinned, but cast them down to hell and committed them to pits of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. 2 Peter 2 verse 4 Consequently, the fallen angels, 
Satan included, had already been cast down to hell and committed to pits of darkness entirely apart from Christ's work of redemption for men. We must therefore reject the view that the binding of Satan referred to in Revelation 20 verse 2 was accomplished by Christ's triumph over him at the cross. We hold rather that the binding of Satan is a process continuing through this dispensation as evil is more and more suppressed, as the world is more and more Christianized, and as there is therefore less and less occasion for God to use the devil as an instrument in the punishing of sinners. Chapter 5, page 128 Parable of the Wheat and the Tares The scripture most generally referred to by amillennialists as proof of their position is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30 and verses 36 through 43. Here it is pointed out that the two grow together until the harvest, which is the end of the world. This is taken to mean not only that good and evil continue to exist side by side, which is the real meaning of the parable, but that the proportion between the two remains practically constant, as do the stalks in a field. Post-millennialists readily agree that as long as the world continues, there will be some evil mixed with the good. Their view of a generally Christianized world does not mean that all individuals will become Christians, nor that all evil will be eliminated. In a field of wheat and tares, the same proportion does continue through the season, none of the wheat becoming tares, nor any of the tares becoming wheat. But as regards human beings, as one generation follows another, and even within each generation, there is constant change. In fact, theologically speaking, all the members of the human race come into this world as fallen creatures, that is, all are born tares. But as the gospel is proclaimed, and as the Holy Spirit does his work of regenerating souls, many, very many, are brought from the realm of darkness to the realm of light. Tares are constantly being transformed into wheat. What that proportion is, and how it varies from generation to generation, is a matter of God's own choosing. The way at least is open, and in view of the many promises of future blessing, we may expect to see an ever-increasing proportion of the world's inhabitants brought from sin to holiness. The biology of grace can affect a transmutation of the species that the biology of nature cannot. Indeed, the transfer of souls from a state of sin to a state of holiness is the primary purpose of this gospel age. God is now bringing many sons unto glory. Hebrews 2 verse 10 the great commission that Christ gave to his church is, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We are not merely to witness to, but to make disciples of all the nations. And as that work is efficiently and effectively carried out, first individuals and then nations are Christianized. When Christ was on earth, the proportion of wheat to tares was comparatively small. Through the years it has increased greatly. As the kingdom is carried forward and this process is continued, there is no reason why the wheat should not become the overwhelmingly greater proportion. Christ has provided an atonement which is infinite in value, sufficient for the redemption of the entire world, efficient for as many as God sees fit to call to himself. 
And since, as Paul tells us, this system of redemption was designed to show forth the exceeding riches of his grace, Ephesians 2.7, we may expect that the final number of the redeemed will be incredibly large in comparison with which that of the lost will be comparatively insignificant. In strong language, the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us, Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same, that through death he might bring to naught him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 Mankind is now divided into two great classes, the regenerate and the unregenerate, and the Holy Spirit is constantly taking those whom he chooses from the unregenerate and making them regenerate. Nor can the parable of the wheat and the tares be made to fit into the premillennial scheme, which holds that first all believers are transfigured and removed in the rapture. For the Lord says, In the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather up first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Matthew 13, verse 30. If the evil are gathered first, as Christ says they are, where then can be found those hosts of evil ones over whom Christ is to rule with a rod of iron in the millennial kingdom? The Schofield Bible attempts to escape this dilemma by saying that while the tares are gathered into bundles for burning, this does not imply immediate judgment, that the tares are set aside for burning, but first the wheat is gathered into the barn. Page 1016 But surely this is an evasive explanation. A decisive answer to that is found in the words of Christ himself in the same context. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that cause stumbling, and them that do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Matthew 13, verses 41 through 43. A division which we believe is made only at the end of the world, at the time of the final judgment. Chapter 6, page 131 Further Considerations The parable of the leaven and that of the mustard seed, which describe the kingdom as beginning very small and growing until the whole lump is leavened, or until the little seed has become a tree, Matthew 13, verses 31 through 33, teach quite clearly the expanding nature of the kingdom. Amillennialism acknowledges that these parables teach that the kingdom of God does make a great development in this world and that it exerts many and great uplifting influences. But it nullifies that to a considerable extent by its teaching that the kingdom of evil also makes a great development, that the two kingdoms have a parallel development, and that the relative strength between the two may remain approximately as it is now until the end. Nor is there any force in the premillennial objection that leaven always symbolizes evil, and so cannot here have the meaning that we give it. For in this parable it is specifically said that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Concerning this general subject, Dr. Snowden has well said, 
The leaven is especially suggestive of growth as it works its way from atom to atom through the meal until it pervades the whole mass. Because the parables of the leaven and the mustard seed especially embarrass the premillenarian view that the kingdom of God is not to be gradually established as a growth by the spread of the gospel, but is to be suddenly set up at the coming of Christ, some premillenarians hold that the leaven does not represent the kingdom as the parable itself says it does, but the spirit of evil, as it does in some other scripture passages, and that the birds in the mustard tree are unclean birds of sin. But this interpretation is far-fetched and forced. Trench, who was a premillenarian, repudiates both of these perversions and points out that it is no more strange that leaven should in one passage of scripture represent good and in another evil than that a lion should in one place Revelation 5.5 represent Christ and in another 1 Peter 5.8 the devil a quote from the parables of our Lord page 113 Levin here affirms Dr. G. Campbell Morgan as everywhere else in scripture is a type not of good but of evil and if you will carefully search your Bible you will find that in no single instance is there variation from this principle a quote from God's Methods with Man, pages 56 and 57. Well, we did carefully search our Bible, evidently more carefully than Dr. Morgan searched his, and found two variations from this principle. With cakes of leavened bread he shall offer his oblation with the sacrifice of his peace offerings. Leviticus 7.13 And ye shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenth parts of an ephah, they shall be of fine flour, they shall be bacon of leaven for first fruits unto Jehovah. Leviticus 23:17. We may therefore dismiss the eccentric notion as unworthy of serious consideration. The point of all these four parables, he had earlier cited the parable of the secret growth of the seed, Mark 4 verses 26 through 29, and the parable of the sower, Matthew 13 verses 1 through 23 is that the kingdom of heaven is a growth and not a cataclysm. It is an unfolding seed and not exploding dynamite. A quote from The Coming of the Lord, pages 73 and 74. Post and amillennialists agree that the final separation between the good and the bad comes at the end of the world. They further agree in opposition to premillennialists that Christ's coming is in the most absolute sense a consummate coming that all evangelistic effort then ceases and that there is no place at all in all the teaching of scripture for a thousand year earthly kingdom. They cite Romans chapter 2 verses 5 through 10 which declares that in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God Christ to whom all judgment has been given John chapter 5 verses 22 and 27 will at his coming render to every man according to his works to them that by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and incorruption eternal life but unto them that are factious and obey not the truth but obey unrighteousness shall be wrath and indignation tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that worketh evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek but glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Greek that, they believe, describes the great crisis at the end of the world as a closely unified event into which it is manifestly impossible 
to intrude an era of a thousand years between the coming of Christ and the final judgment. A scripture often quoted by both awe and premillennialists against the postmillennial position is Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. And as were the days of Noah, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. It is alleged that this verse teaches that when Christ returns, the world is to be in a very bad state morally. We would point out, however, that eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage are not things that in and of themselves are morally wrong, and there is no reason why they should be understood here in a bad sense. They are the perfectly normal pursuits of everyday life. This scripture teaches that in Noah's day the warnings had been given, life was proceeding as usual, and then suddenly destruction took them unawares. Those words were a warning to the people to whom Christ spoke, as they are a warning to us. Our time, too, may come very unexpectedly. We are to be ready at all times. Verse 42 makes this clear. Watch, therefore, for ye know not on what day your Lord cometh. That warning is appropriate whether it is understood as applying to the coming of the Lord for the individual at death or his return at the end of the age. Christians, as well as non-Christians, need to be admonished to watch. There is no necessary implication here that the world is to grow progressively worse. Historical perspective and simple observation of world conditions should make it clear to everyone that the world is getting better. If we compare conditions today with those that existed at the time of Christ, we see that there has been marvelous progress. When we look back to that period, what a picture of spiritual darkness and desolation we behold. The ignorance and superstition that abounded, particularly the abominations and vices that were practiced in connection with the pagan festivals, stagger the imagination. Slavery, polygamy, the low position accorded women and children, political oppression, and poverty were commonplace. All the nations, except Israel, lived in heathen darkness, and even in Israel there was very limited spiritual knowledge, much oppression and wrongdoing, and compared with that which we enjoy, very primitive living conditions. Between that time and the present, there has been great advance in every realm. Even in most of those nations where false religions still predominate, moral and social and economic conditions have been greatly improved through the indirect influence of Christianity. In practically every country, a foundation has now been laid through economic contacts and an understanding of the language that should make possible a much greater extension of Christianity, an extension waiting only for the church to claim those promises and resources that have been given to her for that purpose. Surely one must be very blind to progress and unappreciative of the benefits of Christian civilization to insist that life throughout the world today is not on an immeasurably higher plane than it was 19 centuries ago. While we hold that the world is becoming better, that does not mean that there is steady progress. Individual nations and the world at large have their periods of evangelical advance and recession. As in business and in economic development, there are periods of prosperity and periods of depression. But over the long term there is progress. 
Look at the chart of our national income, for instance, or at a chart of the New York Stock Exchange covering the last 50 years. There are waves of advances, waves of declines, waves within waves, some sharp and pronounced, others small and of short duration. From the standpoint of the moment, we cannot always judge accurately the direction of the economic trend. But overall, there has been a great advance. And so it has been with the course of Christianity in the world. The church made a great advance during the first three centuries of the Christian era, then followed a time of recession. Another great advance was made in Augustine's day, which in turn was followed by nearly a thousand years of stagnation, known as the Dark Ages. Then came the glorious Protestant Reformation under Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and Knox, during which evangelical Christianity again came into its own and won whole nations. Later came the revival in England under Whitfield and Wesley, and in America a much greater advance in theological doctrine and in the relationship between church and state. The world over, the pagan religions quite clearly have had their day and are disintegrating. No one of them can meet the open competition of Christianity, nor can any one of them stand up under the glaring light of present-day science and education. Christianity is clearly the religion of the future. Admittedly, Christians have not taken their religion as seriously nor practiced it as consistently as they should have. But theirs is the system of truth, the only one that through the ages has had God's blessing upon it we may rest assured that in time it will emerge triumphant and rule the world. Pre- and millennialists sometimes make the claim that the course of recent world history, particularly the events of World Wars I and II, disprove the post-millennial claim that the world is getting better. Professor Hamilton, for instance, writing in 1942, while World War II was in progress, said, The events of the past 30 years have revealed the fallacy of such reasoning. World War I shattered the hopes of the advocates of peace through international cooperation in the Hague Peace Conference. The failure of the League of Nations and the breaking of World War II have given the final death blow to any hopes of the ushering in of an era of universal peace and joy through the interplay of forces now in action in the world. A quote from The Basis of Millennial Faith, page 33. This type of criticism is found more often in premillennial books. In the first place, however, true postmillennialism does not depend on peace conferences or leagues of nations or any other merely humanitarian forces to bring about a better world, but upon the effective proclamation of the gospel and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to change individuals, which in turn does lead to higher moral and spiritual and social standards which are reflected throughout the whole range of life. In the second place, this type of criticism is based on too short a view of history. It seems largely blind to the progress that has been made in both church and state. Moreover, it assumes that the end of the world will come in the comparatively near future and that there is therefore but little time left in which the postmillennial system can come to fruition. But there is no substantial ground for assuming that the end is near. The world has continued for nearly 2,000 years since Christ came the first time. It may, for all we know, continue another 2,000 or 200,000. One thing that the Bible makes clear is that we do not know even approximately when the end is to come. 
Let us remember that in every generation there have been those who thought they saw signs which indicated that the end was near, signs which to them were just as convincing as any that are seen today. But they have all been mistaken. If the end is to be in the very remote future, there is nothing in the Bible to contradict that. God works on a scale that is beyond our comprehension, and we must not be too anxious to limit him as to the time that yet remains for this world. Furthermore, as we look back over the course of history, there are numerous periods which must have looked far more discouraging to the people of those days than the present looks to even the most pessimistic among us. To mention only a few, the period of persecution under the Roman emperors, the pillaging of the Roman Empire and the fall of Rome, the Mohammedan invasions of both Eastern and Western Europe, the Thirty Years' War in Germany, St. Bartholomew's Massacre, and the almost complete extermination of the Protestants in France, the Inquisition in Spain and Italy, the French Revolution with all its cruelties, the horrors of the Napoleonic Wars, etc. In each instance there was much suffering and much destruction of life and property, but after each disaster the church rallied and reached new heights. Repeatedly the prophets of doom were proved to have been in error. We do not understand how anyone can take a long-range view of history and deny that across the centuries there has been, and continues to be, great progress and that the trend is definitely toward a better world. Let us not be in too much of a hurry. The post-millennial idea of a Christianized world has not yet been disproved. We are convinced that Bible students in general have been inclined to take too short a view of history and too ready to conclude that we are in the final stages of the church. Part 3 of the book, Premillennialism Chapter 1, page 139 Historic Premillennialism Premillennialism is that view of the last things which holds that the second coming of Christ will be followed by a period of worldwide peace and righteousness before the end of the world, called the millennium or the kingdom of God, during which Christ will reign as king in person on this earth. Premillennialists are divided into various groups by their different views of the order of events associated with the second coming of Christ, but they all agree in holding that there will be a millennium on earth after the second coming of Christ but before the end of the world. A quote by Dr. J.G. Voss from the Blue Banner Faith and Life, January-March issue, 1951. We propose to discuss first those beliefs which belong to the essence of premillennialism as that system has been held by various scholars throughout most of the church age, and then to discuss those distinctive beliefs that in large measure have come to characterize present-day American premillennialism, which in general is known as dispensationalism. Unfortunately, premillennialism has never developed an official creed, either in former generations or in present-day discussion. A movement that has enlisted such a large following and which purports to set forth the divine plan in such detail surely should have an authoritative statement, not only for its own use, but also that others at least may know what it teaches and what it does not teach. If such a statement were available, there would be much less occasion for premillennialists to complain that their system is so often misrepresented. 
As it is, we are forced to rely primarily on the statements of so-called representative premillennialists or dispensationalists, although these differ endlessly and sometimes violently among themselves. No doubt it is because of this difference of opinion that they never have been able to work out an authoritative statement. Consequently, it is not always possible to set forth precisely what the system does teach. This lack of agreement proves that their detailed programs are, after all, not so certain and that they are, in fact, of rather doubtful value. In view of all the books and articles that have been written, the charts prepared, and the time spent in prophetic conferences, it would seem that a fair degree of unity should have been achieved and that some representative conference should have set these views down in authoritative statement. The nearest thing approaching a creed is the set of notes found in the Schofield Reference Bible. But this system differs considerably from historic premillennialism. It is known as dispensationalism because it divides all history into seven dispensations or periods in which man is tested in regard to certain principles of obedience. It had its origin in the teachings of John N. Darby and some of his companions in the Plymouth Brethren Group in England about 1830. It is therefore of comparatively recent date. The teachings of this school have long since ceased to have any important influence in England or on the continent of Europe, but they have been popularized in the United States by the writings of James H. Brooks, W. E. Blackstone, Arnold C. Gabeline, Lewis Berry Schaefer, and above all by the Schofield Reference Bible. These dispensational views have been just as vigorously opposed by other premillennialists, such as Alexander Reese, whom we take to be the best representative of historic premillennialism, and whose book, The Approaching Advent of Christ, 1940, is a classic that should be read by everyone who wants to know the difference between historic premillennialism and dispensationalism. Also by Dean Alvord, H. Grattan Guinness, Nathan West, Theodore Zahn, and more recently, George E. Ladd. The chief passages in the New Testament to which premillennialists appeal are Matthew 24, verses 3 through 44, Acts 3, verses 19 through 21, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, and Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. And in the Old Testament, Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, chapter 65, verses 17 through 25, Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, Daniel chapter 2, verses 42 through 45, chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, and Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. As regards the second coming of Christ, the primary difference between historic premillennialism and dispensationalism relates to the question whether or not the church goes through the tribulation, that is, whether the rapture occurs at the beginning or at the close of the tribulation. Historic premillennialism holds that the Christians who constitute the church go through the tribulation and are exposed to its afflictions at the end of which Christ comes with great power and glory to raise the righteous dead and to rapture the saints who are caught up to meet him in the air, but who almost immediately return with him as he comes to destroy the forces of Antichrist in the battle of Armageddon 
and establish his kingdom. Dispensationalism, on the other hand, holds that the rapture occurs before the tribulation, that Christ may come at any moment without warning signs, that at his coming the righteous dead are raised, and that they together with the living saints are caught away in a secret rapture to meet the Lord in the air, where they remain for a period of seven years. During that time the Antichrist rules on the earth and the dreadful woes spoken of in the book of Revelation chapters 4 through 19 fall on the inhabitants of the earth. Notice according to this view nothing in Revelation chapters 4 through 19 has yet been fulfilled. All of it belongs to the future and will not even begin to happen until after the rapture. One chief advantage of historic premillennialism is that it does not find it necessary to crowd all these events into the short space of seven years, as does dispensationalism. At the end of that period, Christ and the saints return to the earth, and to Christ and his forces, who are persecuting the Jews and have shut them up in Jerusalem, will be destroyed in the battle of Armageddon, and the millennial kingdom will be set up on the earth. The Jews are to be converted at the mere sight of their Messiah, and as the Lord's brethren, are to have a very prominent and favored place in the kingdom. A further distinctive doctrine of dispensationalism is that when Christ was on earth at the time of the first advent, he offered the kingdom to the Jews, but they rejected it. It was then withdrawn until the time of his second coming, and the church, an institution altogether new and not foreseen, nor predicted by the Old Testament prophets, was established instead as a temporary substitute for the kingdom. Dispensationalists are thus double pre's, pre-tribulation, pre-millennialists, with the added distinctive tenets regarding the church and the Jews. The premillennial system is considerably more complicated than either the post or amillennial system, and consequently it has also been attended with greater diversity of opinion among its advocates. But despite these differences, it has been characteristic of both schools of premillennialism to hold, number one, that the kingdom of God is not now in the world, and that it will not be instituted until Christ comes. Two, that it is not the purpose of the present gospel age to convert the world to Christianity, but rather to preach the gospel as a witness to the nations, and so to warn them of and make them justly subject to judgment also to gather out of all nations God's elect, the church saints. Number three, that the world is growing worse and will continue to grow worse until Christ comes to establish his kingdom. Number four, that immediately preceding the return of Christ there is to be a period of general apostasy and wickedness. Five, that we are now in the latter stages of the church age and that the return of Christ is near probably to occur within the lifetime of the present generation. Number six, that at Christ's coming the righteous dead of all ages are to be raised in the first resurrection. Seven, that the resurrected dead together with the transfigured living saints who are then on the earth are to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Eight, that the judgment of all the righteous then takes place which judgment consists primarily in the assignment of rewards. 9. That before and during the tribulation period, the Jews are to be restored to the land of Palestine. 10. 
that at the mere sight of their Messiah the Jews are to turn to him in a national conversion and true repentance. 11. That Christ at his coming destroys the Antichrist and all his forces in the battle of Armageddon. 12. That after the battle of Armageddon Christ establishes a worldwide kingdom with Jerusalem as its capital in which he and the resurrected and transfigured saints rule for a thousand years in righteousness, peace, and prosperity. 13. That during this reign the city of Jerusalem and the temple are to be rebuilt, the feasts and fasts and the priesthood, ritual and sacrificial systems reinstituted, though performed in a Christian spirit and by Christian worshippers. 14. That the golden age also is to be characterized by the removal of the curse from nature, so that the desert shall blossom as the rose, and the wild, ferocious nature of the beasts shall be changed. 15. That during the millennium great numbers of the Gentiles will turn to God and be incorporated into the kingdom. 16. That while many remain unconverted and rebellious at heart, they are not destroyed, but are held in check by the rod of iron rule of Christ. 17. That during the millennium Satan is to be bound, cast into the abyss, and so shut away from the earth. 18. That at the close of the millennium Satan is to be loosed for a short time. 19. That the millennium is to be followed by a short but violent outbreak of wickedness and rebellion headed by Satan, which all but overwhelms the saints and the holy city of Jerusalem. 20. That the forces of wickedness are to be destroyed by fire which is cast down upon them from heaven. 21. That the wicked dead of all ages are then to be raised in the second resurrection, judged, and with the devil and the wicked angels, cast into hell. 22. That heaven and hell are then introduced in their fullness, with the new heavens and the new earth as the future home of the redeemed, which will constitute the eternal state. Historic premillennialism holds that the coming of Christ will be preceded by certain recognizable signs, such as the preaching of the gospel to all the nations, the apostasy, wars, famines, earthquakes, the appearance of the Antichrist or man of sin, and the great tribulation. Many think that they see some of these signs at the present time. Dispensationalists, on the other hand, hold that there will be no further signs, all the prophecies relating to events before the coming of Christ having now been fulfilled and that the return of Christ therefore may occur literally at any moment. Even for the righteous, their heavenward movement being the first indication they have that Christ has come. Dispensationalism thus sets forth a secret coming of Christ for his saints, which they term the rapture, and a visible coming of Christ seven years later with his saints, which they term the revelation. It also holds that in addition to the judgment of individuals, which occurs in the sky following the rapture, there is a judgment of nations, the sheep and goats judgment of Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, when Christ and the saints return to earth. The nations are then judged on the basis of the treatment they have accorded the Jews, the Lord's brethren, during the great tribulation, the righteous nations entering the millennial kingdom while the evil nations are confined to punishment. The Jews are given a much more prominent place in the scheme of things in the dispensational system than in the historic premillennial system, 
Some writers in the latter system treating the distinction between Jews and Gentiles as comparatively unimportant. Dispensationalism holds that the millennial kingdom will be predominantly Jewish with Christian Gentiles in a subordinate position and the Gentile nations, in effect, vassals of the Jewish kingdom in Palestine. Since the establishment of the nation of Israel in Palestine, there is general agreement among dispensational writers that the Jews are to return to Palestine in unbelief and then be converted at the appearance of Christ. But in the past, many have held that they would be converted and then return. Historic premillennialism holds that the entire New Testament is applicable to this age, while dispensationalism holds that much of the Gospels, including particularly the Sermon on the Mount, was not designed for the Church Age, but is Israelitish or Kingdom Truth, and will find its primary application during the Kingdom Age. Within each group there are numerous further points of disagreement regarding details. There is, for instance, no agreement as to whether death befalls any of the believers during the millennium, although it is agreed that it does befall unbelievers. There is no agreement as to the relationship that shall exist between the resurrected and transformed saints with glorified resurrection bodies and those who still are in the flesh, particularly those who are unbelievers. Many believe that the means to be used for the conversion of the world after the rapture will be other than the preaching of the gospel. For instance, the personal appearance of Christ, the great judgments that fall on the earth, etc. It is not clear whether during the millennial reign the risen saints dwell on earth or in heaven or alternate between the two. There is also difference of opinion regarding the propagation of the race during the millennium the extent to which and the manner in which sin will be suppressed or controlled, whether the Jews only or the whole church will reign with Christ during the millennium, and many other points in this highly complicated theory. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. 
there is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.